I'm Amrit Swali. And I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. It's great to have you with us. I'm joined down the line from sunny Southampton by Amrit Swali. Amrit, how are you doing? I'm really well, thank you, Ben. How are you? Yeah, very well. What's happening in the International Security Programme? The International Security Programme is very busy, as are most departments across the house, I guess. The development in the solar wind hack has taken up a lot of our time recently. So, Ben, as I'm sure you know, the US, the UK, um, Canada and a couple of other countries attributed the hack to Russia. The US, for example, is considering sanctions, so it could be something to keep an eye on. But what's going on in the journaling world? I know yourself and other international affairs colleagues have had a very busy virtual conference week. Yeah, we uh, just came out of the annual International Studies Association conference, which happens um, in the US every year and obviously normally involves going to some lovely uh, American city and and hanging out in lots of bars. And, and this year <laughs> has involved me sitting in my living room on Zoom talking listening to people talk um but it was a really really fascinating conference i mean there's literally thousands of different panel discussions on all aspects of international relations and it's a good sort of touch point every year to sort of go and find out what the academic community is worrying about but the solar wind hack stuff sounds super interesting and maybe a topic for another podcast yeah i i definitely explained it extremely well and with such confidence too so perhaps it's time to bring in someone who knows a bit more about it and can speak speak on it more decisively. I just thought I'd interview you, to be honest. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't do that. But maybe let's talk about this this week's episode, um, because we've got two fantastic interviews lined up. Um, Amrit, who did you speak to? I spoke to Chris Sabatini, who is a colleague of ours in the US and the Americas programme. Chris's research focuses on Latin America, and he recently wrote a research paper about the informal sector and the gig economy and how states and international financial institutions need to adapt, I guess, to ensure that workers are protected. We had a really good chat about what the informal sector is, why it's unregulated. We spoke about Uber, the role of IFIs like the IMF and the World Bank, and also youth, which we all love at Chatham House. We're all about the youth. Um, Yeah, fantastic. Well, can't wait to listen to that. And then what you're going to hear after that is an interview with me and Yujia from our Asia Pacific program. And I basically asked her to explain everything you need to know about China's 14th five-year plan, its latest economic strategy that was released in March this year. And she spoke about the implications both for the domestic Chinese economy and also more widely for the global economy. I should say at this point that there were some sound issues a little bit on both recordings. Um, Chris was near some quite loud traffic <laughs> and um, and for some reason my internet connection failed me many times. So, so it may feel a bit stop-start, but um, stick with it because the insights are properly interesting. We just really want to deliver a very authentic pandemic podcast experience. Exactly, yeah. So let's have a listen. Today, 
Today, I'm joined by Chris Sabatini, who is a Senior Research Fellow for Latin America in the US and the Americas program at Chatham House. How are you, Chris? I'm doing well, thank you, Amrit. Chris, you recently wrote a really interesting paper on developing social insurance schemes for informal and gig workers. Before we get to the paper, I wanted to ask you a couple of really basic questions to kind of set the scene and also perhaps fill in my own knowledge gaps too. Um, but as I understand it, informal workers are people who are engaged in jobs that are often quite low in wage um, and also have no access to social security um, policies and programs like unemployment insurance or pensions. Um, could you tell us why that is and why we've allowed this form of employment to develop and why it's treated so differently to perhaps more conventional forms of employment? Yeah, good question. And, and it is, it, it really is defining the, the labor markets of, of today, uh, in particular in the global economy. And it's not just developing economy phenomenon. Uh, we see it around the world, but it's obviously most marked in uh, developing economies. For example, in Latin America, 53% overall of the working class works in the informal sector. Uh, over 80% of the working class in Africa works in the informal sector and around 70% uh, in Asia. And what we mean here is these are people who sort of are squeezed out of formal labor markets. They don't have contracts. Um, some of them are working for formal companies, but they're doing so as so-called self-employed. Um, some of them are small vendors. Uh, if you uh, go to a developing country, for example, the people you see, for example, selling often articles of clothing or food uh, on the streets are often uh, informal workers, uh, as well as people, as I mentioned, in, in that are domestic employees or farm workers, uh, and, and many times are what are often termed as own account workers. And this is a sector of the economy that's also different than the large, the rest of the population. The majority of employees in the informal sector are women. 95% of youth are employed in the informal sector in many countries in the region. So other, in other words, this is a disproportionate uh, segment of youth employment as well as women in these economies. But as I say, it's not unique to developing markets. We see in the developed world as well, in the UK, for example, our Deliveroo employees that have sort of you know, kept us in, 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 in well stocked with good food in our homes during the COVID crisis with, in my case, I just ordered tacos from Deliveroo. Um, uh, others as well. These are uh, informal sector employees. These people who are on bikes or, or mopeds or scooters do not have uh, formal work contracts. They're registered officially as uh, uh, own account workers or the self-employed, the same with Uber drivers um, as well in the United States. So consequently, for example, in the United States, 15% of the active labor force is in this so-called gig economy. Those who work in Uber, those who actually may work on short-term independent contracts for software design and the like. So it's not unique to developing markets, and it, but it's very much uh, uh, reflects, I think, the global market trends in a way that creates a, a, a semi-permanent class of underrepresented and vulnerable workers. It seems that this form of employment is not only quite common, but also very popular amongst a lot of people. Um, if, as you say, it reflects global market trends, why haven't we seen this form of employment being regulated more? Why is there still this social security gap? There are a number of reasons for this. Uh, the first is, it, it's sort of the myths that have surrounded the informal sector, going back decades, uh, and, and really going back to the time of, of, sort of neoliberal reforms. Uh, the, um, a lot of the attention around the informal sector emerged 
around a Peruvian economist, Hernando de Soto, who incidentally, uh, just on Sunday, April 11th, uh, placed third in the Peruvian uh, national presidential elections. Um, but he defined the informal sector class as being sort of an aspiring group of entrepreneurs, this idea that these are can-do, uh, um, self-motivated workers who uh, should be embraced and they're forced in the informal economy because of onerous state uh, bureaucracies and taxes and regulations. And it really reified the segment of the economy. And so we all conceived of them as, well, you know, if we just lifted the burden of the state, these people would be the next Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or who have you uh, of, of the, the global economy. But in fact, for many of these people, you know, whether it's selling mangoes on the street or, or cleaning houses, these are survival tactics. These are not actually uh, 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 aspiring entrepreneurs. These are people who are simply trying to make ends meet and find and the best way to do so is to filling market niches. So consequently, a lot of them are simple workers that are left outside uh, traditional, more formal uh, uh, labor uh, protection. So what this means is many of them uh, are not part of any pension plans. They're not, uh, they don't, because they're registered, they're working offline. They're not engaged in any sort of contributory uh, mechanism to pay for pensions. Many of them do not have unemployment insurance. Now, in many developing countries, an unemployment insurance works differently than it does, say, in the UK and the United States. In many countries in the developing or emerging markets, uh, it's the firms that pay for your unemployment insurance. It's actually a, sort of a tax they pay when they hire you. And then when you leave, for whatever reason, whether retirement, firing, they pay a, a certain percentage of your salaries to, to tide you over until the next job. That obviously, if you're working without a contract, doesn't apply. So all these informal sector workers have no social safety net. So during COVID, what we saw was this segment as, as economies cooled and contracted as consumerism, because a lot of these workers survive on the consumer industry or the service industry, as that cooled as well, many of these people were particularly affected by um, the, the lack of insurance, lack of access to pensions, and the lack of access to unemployment insurance, in addition, Many of these stimulus packages that we've seen uh, implemented around the world have also missed the informal sector workers because since a lot of them work off the books, uh, they're not simply registered with governments. And a lot of those traditional programs were intended to keep people employed or furlough-based programs as we saw mostly in the EU and the UK that didn't affect informal sector workers. So consequently, according to one estimate, 60% of informal sector workers saw uh, fell back into poverty and saw their incomes decline, uh, and, and more than 80% in developing countries saw their incomes basically contract sufficiently that they fell back into the poor. What do you think the pandemic and the whole COVID-19 experience has told us about the way states and governments conceive of social insurance and their role in providing this security for their citizens? Yeah, I'm by nature an optimist, and I, I don't mean to in any way to to uh, to make light or, or to put a a bright face on on the COVID pandemic. But what it has done is it's demonstrated the inherent fragility of of labor markets as they've evolved in the last thirty or forty years, and really sharpest focused a very bright light uh, and sharp attention on uh, the plight of the informal sector and this, these very uh, deep structural inequalities in labor markets. Um, as I mentioned uh, before, because of COVID and because of lockdowns, we've seen uh, this segment of the economy uh, uh, be mostly affected. And so suddenly what we're hearing 
in, in discussions and among economists, among finance ministers in the recent uh, meeting, spring meeting of the IMF and the World Bank, suddenly people are focusing their attention on the informal sector and not, not in the way they used to, not as these as being victims of excessive state bureaucracy, but rather as being victims of very fragmented and exclusive labor markets. Uh, and so that's a very positive thing. Now, the question is, is as we begin to turn the corner, hopefully on COVID uh, and economies begin to grow, will um, both multilateral banks, national governments and developed governments of the world be able to rally in a way that can develop and recreate social safety nets to cover this segment of uh, the economy, the segment of our societies that have largely been left behind uh, in, in during globalization. In the past year, the economic situation for young people has quite seriously deteriorated. Um, the already competitive graduate job market has become even more competitive and the infrequent closure of informal employers who would traditionally employ young adults has meant that things haven't been too great for them. Coupled with this, a lot of young people enter the job market with thousands of pounds of debt and the knowledge that they're unlikely to be able to afford to buy a house as easily as their parents or grandparents and indulge in other luxuries too. The informal sector and gig economy is often billed as the ideal place for young people for them to develop skills and try things out that they wouldn't particularly have thought of doing. But we just haven't seen that in the past year and it feels like things won't necessarily be getting better. What do we need to see happen to instill confidence in young people that the economy can work for them and they won't always be undercut? That's a good question. It goes to several of the things I said before. Um, because what you just described, Amrit, is that uh, it's not unique to the UK. It, it's happening in the United States. There is a huge spike in, in levels of discontent um, and levels of unease about the future uh, among the next generation uh, as they enter the labor markets. And they're going to be particularly affected from the year and a half uh, of uh, COVID and lockdown. Um, in previous economic data has shown that uh, late entrance into a labor market have a difficult time catching up. And then you add to that all the things that you talked about, the mounting levels of debt, um, a labor market that is, is fragmented at best, um, exploitative in, in the worst cases. Um, so what do you do? Again, it goes, and I hate to phrase this all as just a rethink of the nature of work today, but I think we need to engage in that, first of all. Second of all, I do think particular attention needs to be focused on uh, easing the entrance of the next generation in the labor market. That means reducing uh, student debt. It also means providing and ensuring that there are stable jobs and new forms of apprenticeships that provide a pathway to formal jobs. It means providing a suite, if you will, of uh, social protection programs, whether it's health insurance in the United States, obviously less relevant in the UK, uh, as well as pensions, uh, unemployment insurance, even forms of housing assistance. Again, given this lifetime, one of the most curious things we've seen during COVID in developed economies is real estate prices spike, which who would have thought? So all these things present a particularly difficult uh, nut to crack for uh, the next generation of, of workers that's entering the, uh, the labor market uh, in 2020 and beyond. But second is this level of distrust that we're seeing is troubling for the reasons I mentioned earlier about national populism, because when people don't trust institutions, when they don't trust their leaders, when they feel insecure, they tend to cling to more extreme, not all the time, I'm not saying you'll do this, Amrit, but they tend to cling to more extreme answers. Uh, and we see 
the inklings of this in a good way so far of the social protests that swept globally over the Black Lives Matter and other forms of, of expressions of social, socially conscious protest. Um, but we need to address that in a positive way. I'll end on a positive note, again, because I am an optimist. It, it, in, in, after the Great Depression, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected and launched his New Deal, um, levels of social trust in the United States were very low in terms of the government, in terms of government response, uh, levels of, of pessimism were very high. As a result of his social security program, as a result of also things like providing pensions for widows and the like, uh, within less than a generation, within several years even, social trust increased dramatically. Uh, it, it recreated, if you will, that bond between voters and their government. Uh, and and it, it, doing that, getting there, actually required overcoming. Because of course, you can imagine it was a leap of faith to get workers to contribute their salaries to a social security program, pension program, to the government, for which they didn't have much trust. But they broke that, that level of that bond of distrust or that suspicion. And as a result, we saw decades in the United States a very positive growth and sentiment and connections among citizens. We need to do that again. And not to sound dire, uh, but I think we need to really focus on, on a lot of these issues and not just assume this is going to be business as usual as soon as we're out of the woods on this COVID pandemic. You've mentioned this in one of your previous answers as well, but one of the things that struck me most by your, in your paper was that a lot of the reasons for or considerations around designing social insurance and security policies and programs are quite neoliberal. Um, but at the same time, it seems that it's neoliberalism that has put us in this position in the first place. Um, how do we square that circle, I guess? Well, you know, it's, it's a, it, it is neoliberalism. It was, um, you know, it, when in the wave of structural adjustment reforms that uh, came in the 80s and 90s in particular with the uh, downsizing of parastatals or the selling off of parastatals and the, um, uh, with that, uh, the uh, laying off of, of redundant employees, the tearing down of tariff barriers, all of that led to uh, sort of a wave of, of uh, new forms of employment, mostly in the informal sector, that also escaped the traditional mechanisms of worker representation, say labor unions. But by the same token, uh, what was hampering this was also the incomplete reform of labor laws in many countries, particularly in the region that I focus on in Latin America. Labor laws are, are indeed very onerous. To hire an employee, you have to commit to uh, paying out a certain amount of unemployment insurance if you're a business and uh, very generous uh, benefits in terms of um, sick days, in terms of leave, that really are a disincentive for businesses to hire formally. So you had, on the one hand, businesses shedding employees. On the other hand, businesses not having much incentive to hire employees. And so this forced them into this very heterogeneous uh, informal sector employment, which by the same token, really escaped traditional means of labor unions. Now, labor unions have traditionally been able to organize their workers around a shop floor, around common issues. Suddenly they're confronted with this inchoate mass of, of workers or self-employed or what have you that don't fit traditional notions, not to sound Marxist here, God forbid, don't fit traditional notions of a working class or labor class, but actually are somewhat uh, in between. It, it, another example would be, say, Amazon employees who are not on a sh factory shop floor, but are operating oftentimes remotely or in computers. Um, it, it's difficult to organize uh, these, these workers. 
Uh, and so what happened was they simply got left in between, in between neoliberalism and in between a set of uh, structures and, and conceptions of the working class that simply hadn't caught up with the realities of our globalized post-neoliberal world. And forgive me, I'm sounding excessively philosophical on that, but it is sort of part of a larger global trend about how economies has developed and how the working class has developed around them, or oftentimes because of that, in ways that escape um, our traditional notions of, of ways to group uh, uh, socioeconomic uh, classes, if you will. Well, I, th I think we all need a bit of philosophy and politics sometimes just to make <laughs> oh, it a little, a little, little bit more interesting. Of existence or any of that stuff here. Um, I guess related to that, I mean, you mentioned the role of unions. Um, I guess one of the biggest examples that we've seen previously um, that has put gig economy workers into the informal sector in the news is, of course, um, the ruling on Uber drivers recently. So last month, the UK Supreme Court ruled that Uber drivers should be classified as workers rather than self-employed. I think a few things really struck me with this example. One was the role of the judiciary in this. Another was Uber's rhetoric around the ruling and how it kind of appeared to be celebrating this victory, even though presumably it, it had had quite a hand in preventing this development in the first place, um, but also the role of unions as well. So I think what I would perhaps like to hear more about is what does the ruling mean in practice and what does it tell us about stakeholders, the stakeholders that need to be involved in fixing these gaps and kind of really conventionalizing the informal sector? Yeah, the decision by the UK Supreme Court was important. Uh, and as you say too, Uber's reaction to it was, was uh, kind of telling and, and a little um, funny. Um, because just a few months before, Uber and Lyft and other uh, um, for hire car services pushed back against a uh, law in California that was requiring uh, them to list uh, their drivers or delivery people as employees which would have been workers. It's a different, it, we don't have the same distinction between workers and employees in the United States as you do in the UK. Um, and they spent hundreds of millions of dollars to beat back this law, um, arguing that the, the cost, the higher costs we passed on to riders and food delivery, um, that these workers wanted to have that flexibility and they won. Uh, it was put up to a, re a referendum and they, and they won. Um, in the case of, of the UK, it took the Supreme Court to, to, to rule that these were indeed not just the, the, this glorified self-employed, but were in fact working for a wage and deserved a living wage and deserved also benefits, access to holiday pay and, and to pensions. And that's very, very positive because it starts to demonstrate, first of all, the recognition that these are workers in a certain sense, they're, yes, they're different than say the traditional factory workers. But second, it demonstrates that the path may actually be one of judicial um, intervention, if you will, or rulings and the rule of law, rather than putting this up uh, straight up for politics as was done with California's relatively uh, unique uh, political mechanism of referenda. Uh, so I think this is a very positive thing. Uh, it does demonstrate again that the dialogue is changing. We see a similar thing actually in the UK right now with delivery, delivery uh, drivers and, and bicyclists where um, it's Deliveroo is about to go uh, make an initial public offering on the stock exchange. And a number of investors are saying, whoa, whoa, hold on, wait. These employees, and they are employees, are not earning a living wage. They're, they're basically sort of uh, scrambling to pick up deliveries and deliver them uh, from, from restaurant to restaurant, not even dedicated to one particular restaurant. And they're not earning the minimum wage, according to the UK 
Um, and, and the pushback from Deliveroo says, no, 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 these are self-employed people, which is a cute way of trying to not take responsibility for uh, their living standards. And what is unique here is that suddenly it's investors saying, well, you know what, we're a little uncomfortable with this. And so to your point, Amrit, about the multiple stakeholders, I think the judiciary has to get involved. I think it's gonna take politics, but politics oftentimes don't, aren't gonna do the trick as we saw in California. It's going to take investors and businesses to kind of finally begin to accept their reputation is on the line and also their investment is on the line. Investors, as I say, are shying away from this IPO from Deliveroo. Hopefully more will happen like this. And it's also gonna take labor unions. As I mentioned earlier, labor unions for a long time have really sat on this very easy traditional notion of how they did their business. And they haven't tackled the tough questions. And I think they're gonna to have to step up as well. And last, I think public consciousness. This is a generational issue too. Um, of your generation, Amrit, and, and others like you, you need to recognize the labor market you're entering right now is a pretty um, insecure and fragile one. And it is going to take uh, the recognition, the consciousness of voters, particularly those most affected by these very leaky labor laws and social protections to say, stand up and say, wait, hold on, this is not the labor market we want. And, and again, not to sound excessively optimistic, I think the tide is beginning to change in a very positive way. Turning to the political side of this, and forgive me, Chris, I'm going to quote some of your paper back to you, if that's okay. Um, but you argue that the insecurities propagated from labor markets and I guess the lack of central and appropriate mitigation of these problems have contributed to the rise of nationalist populist movements. You also say that the most urgent and important rationale for reform of social security policies and programs is political. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you understand, or rather how we should understand the relationship between democratic governance, social security and political stability. Um, like how do these interact and what are the implications for not getting the balance right? Let me just first by saying there are economic reasons for doing this as well. I mean, the informal sector workers are, are famously uh, underproductive. And in a situation where you have, as I mentioned in Africa, 80% of your labor force is in the informal sector, that's a huge drag on a, an economy's productivity and economy's ability to develop. But there's also the political dimension. And that's very much something we're confronting right now. Uh, a book published by a, a, a fellow at, at Chatham House, Matthew Godson on populism, national populism. Um, you know, he makes a very evidence-based uh, argument that the popular bases of populist movements the world over are not necessarily the poor, they're the economically insecure. In fact, it, in many cases, his argument based on again data is that it's, it's not the people below the poverty line, it's people above the poverty line, but feel that their jobs are threatened and don't have access to safety nets that are, if you will, the popular fodder for populist movements that have sprung up. And that makes sense. Uh, I can say this even uh, coming from the United States and knowing well a lot of the, the Trump base. So and the reasons why are pretty obvious. When you think about sort of a, a popular base of voters that are disconnected from organizations that don't have that social capital of networking, of belonging to a union, of belonging to clubs, of belonging to those things, they are really ripe for uh, um, calls by movements and leaders to play upon their insecurities uh, and to play upon their sense of either latent or even obvious uh, anger and even racism. 
And so that is the base in many cases. This is true also, we just saw elections that I mentioned in Peru, uh, April 11. Um, that also is, is what we see there and the, the very volatile electoral conditions in which voters swing from one candidate to another. There were over 18, there were 18 candidates in the presidential election in Peru. Um, it's gonna have to go to a runoff and the two main candidates only got about 30% of the vote. And the reason largely is that without these traditional mechanisms of channeling voter discontent, of orienting voters' policy preferences into clear uh, options, we see uh, the, the, the rise of outsider candidates, the easy stoking of anger and discontent uh, and even racism. Uh, and this is tied very closely to this disorganized group of insecure uh, workers. And that's really is in many ways, the, the, um, the ways in which politics have become unanchored from uh, traditional means of, of representation and uh, become more attached, if you will, to these sentiments of insecurity and, and, and uh, um, anger. Great. Um, I mean, you've given us examples from the Netherlands, China, Peru, US and the UK. If we accept that social insurance and security needs to reflect and adapt to local circumstances and contexts, what role should international cooperation play? International financial institutions are going to be key. Um, they, they, in many ways, were the, the purveyors of, of the old notion of the informal sector as just being a group of entrepreneurs that we needed to free from the shackles of the state. Um, now it's time to reconsider that, and that's beginning to happen. Um, and so, first of all, there, there needs to be a sort of a, a global reconsideration of what we mean by the informal sector and what we um, see as being the solutions to uh, protecting uh, their rights and, and their security, economic uh, security. Um, but so there also, in, in this, there needs to be reconceptualization of development and labor markets. And I think multilateral banks and, and developed economies are going to be key to doing this, just at a conceptual philosophical level. Um, but, but second of all, they're going to be important because they set the agenda in terms of their lending in ways that we saw with the neoliberal era, the whole wave of structural adjustment reforms of the 80s and 90s, this whole idea of neoliberalism and you know, loosening uh, uh, state control to create markets, um, tearing down borders, free trade as an engine for economic development, which it is, but we're now seeing the after effects. That came in large part from a lot of the programs of the IMF and the World Bank, the so-called Washington Consensus, which is probably the worst branded economic reform program ever. I mean, especially if you're from Latin America, the idea that the Washington Consensus is going to come down is, is a little scary. But so now it's a question of what is the next, if you will, sort of post-COVID consensus. And I think, so at a conceptual level, that's important. But there's also the issue of, of, of reform and change. The Bretton Woods system, that was the basis of the creation of the World Bank and the IMF, really hasn't gone through much of an update since it was created in post-World War II. Question is now is how can it be updated for the new challenges of globalization? And that requires new lending programs and new technical capacity. And we're entering a world now post-COVID in which a number of governments are going to face debt crises. Maybe not a global systemic debt crisis of the, of the 1980s, say, but more governments because of the aggressive stimulus packages that they had to implement and, and for, with reason, now are confronting very little fiscal space to be able to address these issues of new social programs. Question then is, 
can the G20, can the IMF and the World Bank, the Bretton Woods provide some form of debt relief or some form of debt incentives to encourage these national governments to rethink the nature of their social programs, to rethink the nature of the social contract between state and citizens, and to redesign this in this juncture between post-COVID and, and a new global economy um, going forward. And I think in that case, whether it's debt relief, service assistance, whether it's even the technical capacity, and, and the IMF and the World Bank employ legions of economists uh, and technocrats to help governments implement, sometimes imperfectly, reform programs and social uh, service programs. Now the question is, is, can they staff up to address this fundamental inequality uh, within labor markets? And I think in that case, beyond the discourse, beyond the sort of philosophical sort of underpinnings of how we think about the global economy, the question is, how can they staff up technically? How can they reorient their financial programs to incentivize governments to begin to address this? I think that's very important. If the IMF or the World Bank came to you, Chris, and asked you to put together a blueprint for social security programs, what would your top four priorities be? Oh, geez. Now we're talking hypotheticals. Um, Fun hypotheticals, though, I hope. And important <laughs> ones, too. No, they are, thank you. Um, no, and I agree. And, and so and this is a conversation that's ongoing. I, I think the first is beginning to re-engage these governments uh, in ways that, that try to reorient social assistance programs to address these uh, segments of the economy. And that means the first thing is actually taking a basic census. The, I was just reading an article by an economist at the LS, at LSC that looked only at the case of Indonesia. And she was arguing just the millions of people in the informal sector that simply aren't on the books that are not counted in government statistics. Um, they don't know where they live. They don't know where they work. They, and as a result, fell out of these stimulus packages. The first order of business has to be getting a, a, an effective headcount of who these people are, where they live, if you're going to support them. It sounds rather dorky um, and, and, and you know, slightly yeah, off note, but it is important. We need good data. Uh, and I love data, but that's a different issue. Um, and so we need good data, um, my preferences aside. So that's the first thing. And, I, and, and, and again, given the lack of fiscal space, developing market economies are definitely going to need outside assistance to, to incentivize them to do this and to do it well. The, the second issue that they have to do is then begin to work with this, the multi-sector uh, stakeholders that you mentioned and talked about. Businesses, labor unions, um, investors, uh, in, and, and also community groups. A lot of these group, individual informal sector workers are represented by community groups, women's groups, local vendors associations, what have you, working with them and bring them into the debate to start to design mechanisms that help them uh, and give them a seat at the table. And then last, I would say that they have to, on this multi-sectoral uh, uh, strategy, they need to engage labor unions and they need to engage the private um, uh, banking community. Ultimately doing this, as I say, is not going to be, and shouldn't be, creating an entirely new massive state program with all of the uh, uh, implications of inefficiencies and, and, and lumbering slowness that it, that implies, but rather working with those who have the business, have the contacts, have the know-how um, on marketing, on client outreach, 
on maintaining accounts and begin to work with them to develop those. Those are the key things that I think the World Bank, the IMF can do, um, not because it, it is, they're all powerful. They, can, they should and will need to work with uh, technocrats and economists and sociologists and what have you, uh, even political scientists like myself, although we're lower on the ranking, I'll admit I'm not looking for a job, um, but they will need to uh, enlist them locally in engaging in this discussion and this process of organization and redesign. Um, and that's going to be key. Great. Well, I, I definitely lost count of the number of priorities you gave there, but I guess it's just <laughs> an indication of how complex this tapestry is. Um, or just, just an indication of how completely disorganized my mind is. One or the other. But I'm sure it's not that. Um, <laughs> so anyway, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, this was super interesting. Thanks, Amber. Thanks for listening. It was a great pleasure. So on 11th March 2021, China's National People's Congress passed the country's 14th five years plan, which sets out China's economic and industrial strategy for the next five years. And it's likely to have very important implications for the global economic system. So to break all of this down and, and to tell us a bit more about what the plan includes, I'm joined today by a friend of the podcast, Yujia, um, a senior research fellow in our Asia Pacific program. Um, I'm, I think this maybe is your fourth episode of Undercurrents, but I'm very glad to be coming back to this topic. I, I wonder if we could begin actually with some background to the five years plan sort of principle. Can you tell us a bit about the history of this planning system and why these documents are published? Sure. Um, five years plan. Um, this is actually very um, Soviet style of uh, economic policy making. Um, the Chinese Communist Party have learned this from the Soviet uh, government in the past to every five years set up some kind of hard economic target. Like, for example, what would be the GDP growth rate for the particular country? What would be the industrial output of the particular country? And what will be the um, economic longer term goal for this country. Um, so that is so-called five years plan. But it's also a budget report to review what the government has been doing the last five years and look in the future in the next five years and what government should do. And it is not just about economic planning. It is also included in issues on social welfare and occasionally included on issues on foreign affairs, um, which included in this particular 14th five years plan as well. So put in the context, um, China's five years plan, it is an economic blueprint. And for the understanding of the Western audience, especially for the UK audience, it is a combination of Quinn's speech in the parliament every year, together with the, the UK Chancellor's um, budget report every year. So that is a, that kind of combination we had together. So it is an economic blueprint, but that is relevant to the everyday economic activities of everyone in the country and potentially also for the foreign investors as well who is interested in the Chinese economy and who have invested in the Chinese economy. I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about the targets that are involved. In the past, have these, have, have these targets been set at a level that the policymakers kind of knew they would achieve? Like, were these targets meant to be ones that are sort of easily achieved or maybe even documents? Is it, is it more like sort of superseded or are they sort of more aspirational statements of intent? 
for China's particular five years plan, I think there's actually a um, realistic target and is usually calculated by the provincial governments. So each provincial government um, will have to report to the central government to show what is the economic indicator they will have. And then based on that economic indicators in the past five years, and then the Central Statistic Bureau will do a forecast um, of the GDP target for the overall um, the entire country. So that's how the uh, measurement has been made. Now, interestingly, um, on this 14th five years plan, there's a no hard GDP target has been given at all, which is to say that is a very um, a radical departure um, comparable with all the previous um, 13 five, five years plan altogether, because you always see that China intended to grow X amount of GDP. But for this particular five years plan, it doesn't have a hard GDP target. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I think the reason number one is because of the post-pandemic recovery, Chinese government know it will be very uneven because by being an export-oriented economy, it is very hard for China that making a measure on a global market, which is still in the really in the middle of fighting the pandemic. Therefore, the economic recovery at a global level will be very weak. So it's unable to making a calculation on hard target. I think secondly, it is also because the Chinese government is now intent to making the economy more sustainable and building more resilience, more economic and financial resilience within the, um, within the country. And therefore, instead of having a hard GDP target and then all the economic policies is revolving around chasing that target, but then borrow a large number of money and building a debt level and instead, I think the Chinese central government will be more interested in reducing the level of debt and also making the economy working at more, at more sustainable level and avoiding the waste in terms of investing in unnecessary infrastructure in order to pumping the GDP number. So that's a second reason why there's no hard GDP target um, for China. Now, thirdly, I think it is also because this whole idea about so-called GDP does not necessarily translate it into individual welfare of the of the entire population anymore. So what we look at in the last 40 years or so in China, despite having that astronomical economic growth, but the wider population's well-being and not necessarily come together grows positively together as the GDP grows. So the government clearly aware that the GDP target are not necessarily being translated into personal well-being, and then that is a missing link between the government and the population. So I think there's are three reasons why they have not set up a hard GDP target this year, and also for this particular five years plan. The only number they have is the estimate that the Chinese economy by 2021 will grow around 6% above. That's the only hard numerical target you'll find out in this 14 five years plan. Well, let's let's turn to the plan then and, and see what they did include then. Because so so rather than having lots of sort of numerical targets, what, what were the big developments? The three things uh, in this um, uh, 14 five years plan, which is particularly interesting. Um, firstly, it is it's the tenure because Given by its name, five years plan, it should cover from 2021 to 2025. But however, it is not, it's actually covered for 15 years. The ultimate target for these five years plan is by 2035, 
and China will become middle to high level income country, join that club of middle to high level income nations. So that's the ultimate goal um, within this five years plan. So 15 years working plan. Now, secondly, and most importantly, it is that this entire document around 150 pages and then put innovation at the very core of driving the Chinese economic growth in future. So, which is to say that putting innovation across different sectors, across different industries and across different education spectrum as well. So it's all around all weather type of innovation strategy. Um, it is no longer uh, industrial policy which is talking about certain sector has to input some kind of innovation drive. But instead, by having the economic resources invested in all sort of innovation in order to drive the Chinese economy. So I think that is something very unique about it. And also for the first time, the government within this plan um, to talk about if for anyone who have studied or worked abroad, if they could bring something cutting edge, a technology innovation back to China, or they could bring a team of innovative talents back to China, and that particular person will be rewarded monetarily. So this doesn't sound very socialist to me at all. It sounds more capitalist, <laughs> but for some reason that, that might work for the Chinese current economic system. So that is the innovation, which is also different. Now, lastly, what is different is this new buzzword, so-called dual circulation. Now, this is essentially talking about demand and supply. The reason why there's a dual, there's a two elements on it. There's a one element talking about internal circulation. So the internal demand and supply, and from now on the Chinese economy will be driven by domestic production and also drive by domestic consumption. So that's the internal circulation and coupled together with the old model of the so-called export oriented model of the Chinese, Chinese economic growth. So that would be the external circulation. So this is the act together and that is a new concept, but which has been widely debated um, across the world among the investors communities and among the economists, because many of them believe that China's consumption level has not reached, um, reached that sufficient level in order to drive the productivity. So that's one of the debate they have in here. Now, second debate is also this question that whether China would be interested in turning into some kind of autarky and shut its door, like what China has done back to the time of cultural revolution in order to um, carry on its own internal demand and supply. So it is really up to interpretation. There has been all sorts of debates across the policy community inside Beijing at the moment about this dual circulation. Yes, that's that's very interesting. Uh, and it relates to something that I think we've spoken a bit about before in a previous episode of the podcast about what sectors the kind of future Chinese economy is going to be based upon. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a combination of different aspects in here um, and different sectors. So surely China is no longer satisfied itself and can only be the the world manufacturing hub, you know, by being the world factory exporting personal protection equipments and the ventilators but instead yeah. what china would be interested in and especially under what i call it the external circulation element china would be more interested into exporting renewable energy equipments um things hung refined machineries and on um some kind of environmental protection technologies and these are the things that china 
would be interested in um, export um, to the rest of the world. So in a way to move up to the value chain. So that is the, um, the certain sectors that China would be particularly focusing into. It will be on renewable energy equipment and also on environmental protection technologies. So these are sectors. Now, there's another element in here that if you have noted that what does it make China's, this particular five years plan different compared with say 10 years ago, the stimulus economic, um, economic stimulus package back after the financial crisis is that you did not see Beijing has utilized enormous financial resources by pouring the investment in the infrastructure in like say, for example, building um, airports and railways and high-speed rail and, and high-speed railways, things like that as well. Because um, the issue which I said earlier is the debt issue. Um, the Chinese government and also the financial system is still absorbing the debt has been left behind after the previous stimulus package. And therefore, let it long open any new stimulus economic package. So interestingly, no hard infrastructure to be built. But instead, and the government is more keen to invest in the so-called soft digital infrastructure, the things on digital economy, things on 5G network, and things on using AI or quantum computing as the model of governance or using everyday technology um, governing the country or using those technology achieving e-commerce. So these are the sectors that China would be ultimately looking to. So no longer building railways and bridges, but will be invested and roll out in the digital infrastructure. Another sort of thread I wanted to pick up on from your initial explanation of the, of the plan was this focus on sustainability um, and resilience. And obviously in 2021, um, a huge part of the kind of international agenda is climate change, um, not just with the COP26 conference, but also um, during the G7 summit and, and various other summits throughout the year. So I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about what you think this plan has to say. Many Western commentators and policymakers would have put the high hope that was in this five, was in this five years plan that China would be able to um, um, reveal the details on how China would reach carbon neutrality by 2060. But obviously the Chinese government did not provide much details into it. Um, I think part of the reason is that um, the Chinese government is now juggling different um, cards in here, whether to have economic growth or to have some sense of environmental protection, or they can't have both at the same time. So that would be the, the difficulties. Um, but secondly, that China cannot really exclude itself completely by saying we're no longer doing, we're no longer launching any um, green agenda at all. So instead, what you have is you have seen that the green agenda has been subsumed into part of the economic planning by assuming that carbon reduction to the fossil fuel companies are so important and they have to reach a certain target to re reduce the carbon emission. And also things on, for example, the China's Belt and Road Initiative, the flagship overseas investment um, initiative that China is no longer permitted to uh, fund coal-fired plants, um, for example, in Sri Lanka and in, in Bangladesh and various other countries. So that is some initiative has been taken. But so far, we have not seen too much ink has been given to the green agenda within the 14th five years plan. I think also part of the reason is that the 14th five years plan 
it is uh, the lowest common denominator document. So there's always a different bargains among economic planning department vis-a-vis -vis the environmental protection departments. So um, I think both departments have their own arguments and they haven't really come up with a firm conclusion. So that's why I think there's a deliberate ambiguity left inside the 14th five years plan. We haven't seen much how China is going to achieve its carbon neutrality by 2060. Thank you. Um, now, I wanted to have a think now about the implications of this plan for um, the global economy. Um, and I mean, obviously, you've, you mentioned the, the principle of dual circulation and how there is going to be, to an extent, a kind of reorientation towards domestic activity and less of a reliance on export. But what do you think this will mean for, for the health of the global economy? Can, it's going to be a kind of rocky road for the next couple of years. <laughs> well, it's interesting you'll say that. I, I think sometimes what have not been said within the plan is perhaps more interesting than what has been said in the plan. Now, the entire document has not mentioned two words, the United States. But actually, the entire document, it is all about how China could handle the potential fallout between Beijing and Washington. Mm. Um, which has come to this, the point that um, China realized by distributing limited economic resources, they have to know where the economic resources will have to go. By having this whole dual circulation idea, which is to say that many of the Chinese investors are most likely state-owned enterprises, they have to redistribute their financial resources back to the domestic market. So you're less likely to see that merger and acquisition, the larger scale merger and acquisition happened in the previous five years. You, so you would no longer see that, for example, China's chemical company bought primarily the Italian tire manufacturer, for example. You would no longer see such deals. And what you would see instead is you would see that China would be more interested in investing rather heavily in Asia Pacific region which is traditionally have much stronger economic links with China. So many Asian member states, for example, um, around 15 um, different Asian e economies being the larger trade partner with China than for example, compared with the United States. So that China is interested in reallocating its resources back to Asia Pacific region and less so in the regions such as in Eastern European countries or in Latin America. So that would really shape how Chinese investors behavior because of this dual circulation. Now, secondly, it also come to the element that worsening China-US relations um, make the Chinese government fully aware at the end of the day, it has to build the economic resilience at home in order to combating the highs and lows of this volatile bilateral relations. So therefore, hence they come to the internal circulation by having Chinese consumers to spend money in order to generate China's own economic growth, less rely on American consumers and less rely on European consumers. So these are the considerations within the five years plan. And even more interestingly um, on this plan is usually it is a very much domestic oriented documents, um, but the publication dates is very interesting. The executive summary dates has been published just on the day of American presidential election last year. That's a, that's a deliberation by the Chinese government. And also on the second paragraph of that executive summary that um, the Chinese Communist Party openly admit that um, China facing the most precarious international environment which have not been seen in the last hundred years. 
and I do not recall any of the official party publication admit that China is facing precarious international environment. So clearly indicate um, that Beijing, considering how seriously that bilateral relations between Beijing and Washington will jeopardize China's economic growth and economic development. Thank you very much. I just have one more question, um, which I suppose is kind of twofold. One, one is um, thinking about the legacy of this plan. Like what, what are the stakes of, of like contained in this plan if it's successful or if it doesn't go well? Who will, who will get the credit or the blame? And to what extent, I guess, in a connected way, what, what does this plan mean for Xi Jinping's leadership of China? I mean, obviously, a lot of the debate in, in Western media, at least, focuses very much at the very top of the Chinese government and everything revolves around, around Xi to an extent. But you've mentioned the vast array of stakeholders involved in delivering this plan. Are there serious implications for Xi's leadership if it doesn't go well? Of course, he has no one else to blame if the entire plan doesn't go well. Uh, but I mean, the intention is very much revolving around his whole ideas of national rejuvenation. China will become um, a global power that was huge economic rich, but also with international influence. But obviously, with, we are in that critical juncture that the relationship between China and the West has turning from bad to worse and not going to get better anytime soon. So China will have to prepare its own economic solution to survive. So I guess this 14th five years plan is more about more of a survival gui guidance than something about fulfill ambition, <laughs> putting this way. Now, secondly, um, I think the key thing for here is firstly, rely on Chinese consumers, but secondly, also rely on innovation talents. Um, by having innovation talents that will require time and that will require generations of hard work, it will not happen overnight. So how does innovation drive or taking charge and driving the entire Chinese economy is still wait to be seen. So I have some questions and doubts on innovation. And also I have some questions and doubts on Chinese consumers, because so far what we have seen so far is you have that very high level of economic growth but without having sustainable level of income growth um, comparative correspondingly um, at the same time. So this would hinder the Chinese consumer's capability to spend more and more. And, now, and also adding the question of that, um, the Chinese urban population and also rural population have not had sufficient social welfare system as yet as such as been shown in this pandemic. So I think the ability for the Chinese consumers will be able to have more disposable income will be put in doubt if they want to have the entire plan to come into, uh, um, to become a success. So two things, depends on the Chinese consumer and also depends on the innovative innovation capability of the Chinese population. Um, we can't put all the blames and glories to President Xi himself. And he's, I think he also made very clearly that in the last year, and everyone has a hard time and everyone should be cheered so I agree with him on that note. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I can't agree with him more on that. So, Yujia, thank you so much for, for coming to explain this today. Thank you, Ben. Delighted to be here again. I hope you enjoyed both of those interviews. 
if you did you should give us a like subscribe or leave us a review on your favorite podcast app it just makes it easier for other people to find us undercurrents will be back with you in a couple of weeks and actually we have a new mini series that will be coming out before our next main episode so you'll be taken by our asia pacific program across to the korean peninsula and we'll be doing a deep dive into uh, south korea's kind of strategic relationships their foreign policy outlook and that will take place over four episodes that will be published in about a week or so then we'll be back talking about facebook and also about President Biden's first 100 days. So that's going to be an episode not to miss. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. If you want to keep in touch with the rest of the work that Chatham House does, then the easiest way to do that is to follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. I'm Ben Horton. I'm Amrit Swali. And you've been listening to Undercurrents. Uh...